What did Peter hear? This is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had told, laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Easter. If we have not had the chance to meet, my name is Bill Smith, and I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. If you were able to be with us on Friday evening, you know that we looked at a man, a Roman centurion, who experienced a profound transformation, someone who not only changed his most fundamental allegiance, but who publicly announced that change, even though the costs were enormous. And we saw that that transformation came about by his prolonged study of Jesus as Jesus hung on the cross. We saw that the centurion had an extended quiet time there at the foot of the cross as he meditated for at least six hours on what he saw Jesus doing and on what it had to mean. I want to consider another person with you this morning who was also profoundly changed, this time not as much by Christ's crucifixion as by his resurrection, specifically by something that he heard from the resurrected Christ. I want us to think about Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, someone on the inner ring of his friends. And the last that we hear of Peter in Mark chapter 14, 72, is that he denied having any connection to Jesus, denied being with him, being part of his followers, denied him three times, and that he did so so violently that he began to call down curses. He swore, I don't know the man you're talking about. It's only afterward, as he realizes what he's done, that he broke down and wept. He wept bitterly, is the way that Matthew's gospel records it. And that's the last time that we see Mark, I'm sorry, see Peter in the gospel of Mark. It's Mark's last word on Peter. Best scholarship tells us that Mark got the material for his book from Peter, so in that sense, it's the last word that Peter had on Peter. But it's not God's last word. Somehow something changes in Peter, something that so transforms him that this man who cannot acknowledge Jesus in the dark to a handful of people later boldly proclaims to thousands in broad daylight this Jesus who's raised from the dead. This Peter who will not speak up for Jesus when he's arrested won't shut up later when the same religious authorities threaten him in the same way. He won't shut up even when they do arrest him, when they imprison him multiple times, not even when they flog him. And he just won't stop until eventually Rome martyrs him. 
And you have to ask, how? how? How is that possible? How does someone go from being cowardly to courageous? From fearful to faithful? From the sidelines to the front lines? How do you get this kind of spiritual internal transformation that transforms your character? How do you get this kind of transformation where your worst moment no longer defines you? Where you have now found something so compelling to live for that no one and no threat can stop you. Where you now have something so special with God that you'd rather lose your life than lose Him. How do you you get that? Peter got it because he heard something. Something that gave him hope. Something that set up a future meeting with Jesus that turned him around and set him on this new course. And it's something that you and I can hear as well. What did he hear? First, he heard that Jesus has the last word on where this world is going. Second, that Jesus has the last word on how you think about yourself. And then third, that Jesus has the last word on who you are. If you get on board with how Jesus has the last word on this world, on how you need to think about you and on who you are, you'll experience the same kind of transformation. Let's dive in. First, verse 6, the angel announces to the women, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. He has risen. That's not at all what the women were expecting. They had gone out after the Sabbath day was over. They bought spices. They bought costly spices, myrrh and aloes mixed into oil. They came to anoint Jesus' body. They were finishing up the funeral rites that the Sabbath had kept them from doing Friday night. They came to the tomb expecting what? They expected a dead body, which is more than Jesus' male friends. They didn't come at all. All of which makes you take this account really seriously. Jesus had talked about his coming death and resurrection so many times. He said that he had to die and that he would be raised on the third day. He said that so many times that Matthew tells us his enemies put a guard on the tomb because they half expected his disciples to try to come and steal the body to fake his resurrection. Turns out the enemies needn't have bothered because not one disciple or follower, male or female, came with the remotest idea that what Jesus said might actually happen, that he might really rise from the dead. No one expected it. No one nudged anyone else that Sunday morning and said, hey, uh, you know, it is the third day. Do you want to go for a walk uh, just to see, you know, if maybe he did rise from the dead like he said he would? No one did that. They were not more gullible than modern people not given to believing in wild, miraculous events. They knew that dead people don't come back from the dead. And they saw Jesus die. They knew he was dead. And they expected, that's the last word on him. In their minds, there's no reason to even go check. Which all helps you realize that this event actually happened. Okay, consider the alternative. Let's say that this isn't true, that it didn't happen but you wanted people to believe that it did. You wanted to create a story that would what? It, it, it would be hopeful, inspiring. You cre- wanted to create a legend about someone who came back from the dead 
to inspire people in their lives. If you wanted to do that, you wouldn't do it this way. I mean, does it make any sense to say these guys who were his closest friends, who were supposed to believe that they believed he was the Messiah, guys who would go on to become the pillars of the church, that these guys did not get the central point of his message. They didn't believe him when he said that he would rise from the dead, but you should believe them when they tell you that. Does that make any sense that you would write it that way if you're making this up? Trying to start a new religion? Think, of course not. That's not inspiring. <laughs> That's not compelling that after being three and a half years with him, his closest associates don't believe the thing that he said over and over and over. You wouldn't say that. Instead, what? You'd have the disciples full of faith and confidence. They would barely be able to stay in bed long enough that Sunday morning. You'd have them gather around the tomb the third day before the sun came up, ready to greet the risen Christ with the first Easter hymn at the first sunrise service, singing, Christ the Lord is risen. That's how the story would end. Not with a few women leaving trembling and bewildered, saying nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is not how you craft stories that have any hope of changing the world, unless they're true. And so you would only write it this way if, what, if it was true, if it really happened this way. Otherwise, it just doesn't make any sense to say this. There's some other things that also tell you the account is true, like having the women be the first eyewitnesses. You could never rely on female testimony to start a movement in the first century. I understand how offensive that sounds. It sounds offensive to my ears. But that's because we've been impacted, as Tom Holland points out in his really thick book, Dominion, that we've been impacted by 2,000 years of Christian influence. Influence that makes the point over and over that all people are equally made in God's image and therefore all people are equally valued. But that was not the case first century on that first Sunday, Easter Sunday. In that day, women were not allowed to testify in either Jewish or Roman courts of law because no one considered their testimony reliable. And so you would only write that they were the first ones there, the first ones to see what happened, the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. You would only write that if it really happened that way. Just like you would only write, verse 5, that the angel was sitting on the right if it really happened that way. Otherwise, why would you say that if you're making this story up? The detail that he's sitting on the right, that is what? That, that's not inspiring. <laughs> that doesn't move the story along, it doesn't advance the narrative, it doesn't make some kind of deep theological point. It's not how ancient legends were written. Every detail in them mattered. Every detail either made a point or moved the plot forward, and this doesn't. And so you would only write this down if this is how an eyewitness remembered that taking place. You'd only write this if it was true, if the tomb really was empty and if an angel on the right really did announce that Jesus actually had risen from the dead. And if that's true, then it means that Jesus' plan is still in play. That what he said and what he set in motion was the last word. 
which is exactly what the angel says in verse 7 when he tells the women where this risen Jesus is now, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. What's that mean? Jesus made plans before the cross, plans that he told his disciples about, plans that he's following right now, which means what? The cross was not an interruption. It was not an unfortunate occurrence. It was not an adjustment to what Jesus had been doing. Instead, it was part of the plan, just like he said it was. The disciples, like everyone else, figured on Friday afternoon as Jesus hung on the cross that it was game over, that something had broken into what he was doing, something that was just too big for him to handle, something that had the last word on him. But now Peter is hearing, they're all hearing, no. The plans Jesus made before his death, those are still in play. Those are what he plans still to carry out. You can still count on that. Only now, you can count on that more so. Why more so? Because if you can't kill the king, nothing can stop him. Not betrayal by a close friend, not re jealous religious authorities, not an unjust, murderous empire. Take all of the worst things that you can imagine in the world. Put them all on one side, the side that opposes Jesus and what he's doing. And his agenda goes forward anyway. That's what the resurrection shows. It shows, as Pastor Ray Ortland writes, that the apparent strength of evil, that's just a colossal bluff. You can't stop someone who won't stay dead, which means you can't stop what he's doing. You can't stop his kingdom, which means you can't stop his people as they obey him in his kingdom. What Jesus came to do is still what he will do because evil and darkness do not have the last word on what will happen in this world. Jesus does. And some of us really need to hear that this morning. Some of us are overwhelmed by the evil and the darkness. We scroll through it on our phones and read about it endlessly. We hear about the darkness from our friends and we get what? Well, we get depressed, discouraged, overwhelmed, demoralized, ready to quit, throw in the towel as we read and hear story after story after story after story after story about how bad the darkness is about how much it's doing. And we need to hear this morning, like Peter needed to hear, that the announcement that Jesus made when he started his ministry, that that announcement is still just as true now, after the cross, as it was before when he first made it. We need to hear that darkness Sin, evil, suffering, all of those things did not shut it down. The announcement that Jesus came to bring good news to the poor, that announcement is still true now. The announcement that he came to set the oppressed free, that's still true now. That he came so that the blind would see, that's still true. His announcement that the kingdom of God was near, that it's at hand, that's still true that he came to bring justice and righteousness to an unjust, wicked world, that he came to set right 
everything that is wrong. All that he said and did before the cross, that was still true after the cross, which means that it's still true now, regardless of what you read and hear. And that means that what Jesus promised his disciples was also true, that they should come follow him, that Peter the fisherman should leave his nets, and that Jesus would teach him and the rest of them to catch human beings instead, that he would teach them to rescue people, catch them, to rescue them from the darkness and do all the same things that he came to do, that the disciples would have a part now in seeing the kingdom of God spread its influence on this earth. That is what Peter thought he was getting in on when Jesus called him. It captured him. That's what Jesus promised him. And he hears now that that's what's still in play. Because darkness doesn't have the last word on where this world is going. Jesus does. Because he has risen. That's point one. Point two. What Jesus promised his disciples is also still in play. Because the darkness doesn't have the last word on how you think about yourself, but Jesus has the last word there as well. Jesus said a number of really strong things over the years about what it means to follow him. That you can't love anything more than you love him. That you have to be willing to take up your own cross and follow him, willing to give up your life if necessary. That if you're ashamed of him, and his words in this life, you should expect him to be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory and in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. Strong words about what it means to follow him. Strong words that Peter heard and then matched with strong words of his own. Jesus told his followers the night before he died that they would all fall away on account of him. And Peter promised in front of everyone that he would not fall away, that he was ready to go to prison if he had to, that he would never disown Christ. Not even if I have to die with you, he said. But then far from dying, he ran away to save his life when Jesus was arrested. He didn't even make it to prison. And all it took was a mild observation from a girl, a house servant, Someone who said in a dark courtyard, hey, you were with that guy who was just arrested, right? That's all it took. And Peter denied that he ever met the Lord. Reinforced that denial two more times. He had a choice the night Jesus was arrested. Choose Christ or choose himself. Value Christ and all that goes with him or deny Christ. And value something else. That was the choice. And that night in the courtyard, Peter chose a different kingdom repeatedly. And it's only in that moment that Peter saw who he really was. Not the loyal disciple that he tried to project when he safely tucked away in a room with his friends. Not someone who had the character to be a good disciple. Someone who was good enough to be with Jesus. Good enough to be Jesus' disciple. Instead, he saw the limitations of his goodness. He saw how little loyalty he had. He saw how thin his commitment to Jesus really was. And when he saw that, when he saw himself, he wept bitterly. Do you know what it's like 
to have that moment. A time when you see that your talk about following Jesus, loving God, was just talk. A time when the real you comes out and you see just how little God means to you. A lot of these. When you say something that has nothing to do with how he tells you to use the mouth that he gave you. Or when you cross a line that he drew for you, one that you agreed with when he drew it for you, one you told yourself, I'll never cross that, and, and then you did. And then again and again. A time when you were cruel to someone. Cruel in a way that would make you really angry if you saw someone else doing the same thing. Or a time when you knew that God wanted you to do something, but you were too afraid of what other people might think about you and what they might do to you, so you didn't. Have you had that time? I've had lots of them. A time where you come face to face with the real you, and you realize that you're not as good as you thought you were. What's that like afterward? Don't, don't, don't you find yourself maybe not weeping bitterly, but definitely regretting what you did? Not able to get past it. You, you, you can't stop replaying it in your head. You can't stop seeing yourself doing those things. You, you, want, you want to pretend that wasn't you. You try to justify it, and, and, and you fail every time because you, you know there's no excuse. There's no justification. It's time when you realize just how small your faith your obedience, your love for God really is. That's where Peter is, Easter Sunday. He's been sitting there now for three days just stewing in this, reliving his failure over and over and over and over again. When somehow he and the others hear that Jesus is risen, in verse 7, that Jesus is going ahead of them into Galilee to meet them, just like he said. And if that's all that Jesus said, if that's all that Peter hears, if the word from Jesus was, tell my disciples, but did not add, and Peter, you could imagine Peter thinking, wow, <laughs> that's great. The king is alive, the Messiah is alive. His plan is the last word. I really wish I could go meet him. But there's no way, there is no way on earth that he wants to see me. Unless maybe he wants to tell me how ashamed he is of me. Save himself some trouble when he comes in his glory with the holy angels. Get it over with now. Hey guys, you know what? You go. I'm staying here. Honestly, it'll be better for everybody. Surely he can't mean me. You know how easy that would have been, right? Think about it. You realize it had been easy for all of them to do that. For everyone to disqualify themselves and say, surely he can't mean me. Maybe he means John. You know, John went to the house where they took him. Maybe John, but definitely not me. Except John's sitting over there thinking, can't be me either. I, I ran away when they arrested him after saying I never would. You know how easy that would have been, right? If you have ever said that you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then realize later that you didn't, learn that you love something else more. You know these thoughts. You've had them. I've had them. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes all of that off the table by saying through the angel, verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter. 
that they will see him in Galilee just as he said. And Peter. Jesus takes all of the internal accusations off the table. All the guilt, all the question marks, all the self-doubt. He says in two words that he's not angry at Peter. Not bitter, not ashamed, not eternally disappointed. Two words that says he gets it. He understands Peter, which means what? He understands you and me. He understands how weak we are. He understands how we feel about how weak we are. He understands how we feel after we've sinned and we hate it, how much we wish we could take it all back. He understands that. And he takes all of that into account as he relates to you and to me. Those two words, and Peter, are Jesus saying, I understand you. I know what you're feeling, and I know what you need, and I don't want you to carry that around for one more minute. I care about you, and I want you because I've always wanted you. Those two words tell Peter that he didn't disqualify himself because Jesus is the one who qualifies him. Those two words tell Peter that what Jesus did was stronger than not only all the roadblocks that evil threw at him, but that what he did was also stronger than the betrayal that Peter threw at him. And so Peter's denial is not enough to halt. It doesn't even slow down the advance of the kingdom of God, not in the larger world and not in his own life either. And it's those two words that give Peter, give the disciples, the confidence to go to Galilee, to have a personal encounter with the risen one. See, it's not just that Jesus is risen. That, that's incredible news. <laughs> but if he doesn't like you, that's really not helpful. What's really amazing is that not only is Jesus risen, but that he wants you. That's what Peter heard that started him down this road of incredible transformation that point to Jesus, not you, not Peter, has the last word on how we think about ourselves. But point three, how's that possible? It's because Jesus has the last word on who you are. Why isn't Jesus ashamed of Peter? I mean, he should be, right? Peter was ashamed of him, wasn't willing to pick up his cross when Jesus picked up his, his own. So why does Jesus include him? Why say, and Peter? It's because something happened after Peter's denial, something that took away his shame, and that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. Something that was not an interruption to the kingdom of God breaking into this world, but something that was necessary. What happened on the cross? It's that Jesus traded places with Peter. He took Peter's denial from him and wore it like, like a shirt. He dressed himself in Peter's rejection, pulled on all the shame that came with it. And then dressed like that, Jesus stood before the Father, bearing that denial, wearing it, taking the full responsibility for it from the Father. And the Father judged what Peter did while Jesus wore it. God held back none of the wrath against that denial, judged it, 
handed down a punishment for Peter's disloyalty, for rejecting God's chosen Messiah, handed down punishment for Peter valuing his own life more highly than he valued Christ's, handed down punishment for loving himself with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength instead of loving his God. God held nothing back. None of his wrath against all the foolish, sinful, self-serving things that Peter had said and done, not only with Jesus, but throughout his entire life. Jesus took the responsibility of all those things on himself, received the full judgment, the full punishment of God for each and every one of them until, what? until there's nothing left to judge, until there's nothing left to pay. How do you know that? It's very simple. Because he has risen. That is God's visible declaration that there's nothing left to pay. His verdict that the debt has been paid in full. When you're in debt, when you are in over your head in debt, when you rack up credit card balances you can't pay off, take out loans you can't repay, you're not what? You're not free. You're controlled by what you owe, and that control extends itself to every area of your life. You can't spend your money any way that you want. No longer free to do that. You can't spend your time like you want. You may have to take another job on the side. At the very least, you have to spend your time thinking about your debt and what to do about it. It weighs on your mind. It makes you dread the collection notices. You're not free. And if you default on your loans, the creditors come after you. They'll try to collect on their own. If that doesn't work, they'll sell your debt to someone else who will what? Who will hound you, call endlessly, threaten you with what's going to happen if you don't pay up. You can try going through bankruptcy, but even then you're still not free because that action now follows you for years. Impacts your credit rating. People don't treat you like they once did. You realize there are some loans, student loans, that are very hard to discharge can even impact how much social security you collect if you default on them. You're not free. The only way to get your life back, the only way to walk away free so that what you owed no longer affects you is by paying your debt off, by paying all of it off. That's what happened Easter Sunday. Jesus walked away free. He took on every last bit of debt that his people owed, suffered the full wrath of God for all of it, and died. He paid what we owed. And three days later, when the tomb was empty, he walked away free. It's because there's nothing left to pay. He took care of all of it. Free to walk away from death. Why? Because you and I are now free from the debt of our sin. That's why he can say, and Peter, because there's nothing left for Peter to be ashamed of, nothing that God's still holding over his head, nothing that God would ever hold him responsible for. Jesus took Peter's shame on himself at the cross that there's nothing left for Peter to be ashamed of. Peter's got to grow. There's some things we've got to work out, but there's no shame involved in any of that. And so Jesus says, include him, and Peter because I paid for him. I paid for him because I want him, and I have the last word.
because of what I've done for him. And in that moment, Jesus shows what has always been true, that the foundation of the new life, the foundation of your friendship with God, your relationship with Jesus, is not based on your past, on what you have done. It's based on Christ's past, on what he did on the cross. Your inclusion in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with his. And so Jesus can say, and Peter, because the past is forgiven. And since it's forgiven by the cross, the future is forgiven as well, since that forgiveness comes by the same cross. And when you get hold of that, you will not sin more. It will not make you apathetic about sin. You will not be uninterested in God. You will not take obeying Him casually. Instead, that will supercharge you. It will energize you. It will transform you, just like it did Peter. How's that work? Let's say that three people, person A, B, and C, Three people get themselves into massive financial difficulties, crushing debt that they just can't pay off regardless of what they do, and then along comes a fourth, a friend, and he pays it off out of sheer goodness, no strings attached, completely wipes it all out. And then over the course of time, you watch these three, A, B, and C, relate to that person who paid for them a couple months earlier. But as you watch person A, seems kind of emotionally unengaged when they're around this friend. Kind of aloof, distant, cool, detached. You know the person who paid off has reached out to them, nothing creepy, not trying to get anything back from them, just checking in out of genuine concern to see how they're doing. Offers to get together, to keep being friends, go grab lunch. Person A just blows them off isn't interested in any kind of real friendship, doesn't return calls, is always late when they get together, sometimes doesn't show up at all, never expresses any interest in this other person, what they're doing. What would you say when you saw that? You'd say person A didn't get it. They did not understand the real world. They had no idea what they were facing, they had no idea how much trouble they were in or how much they were being offered now. That's person A. Pretty obvious, right? Someone who does not see the enormity of their sin against God, does not see the price that Jesus had to pay, and so has very little interest in being with him, very little interest in being with his people. Person B is different. Always happy to get together with the one who bailed them out, always on time, would do anything for this other person at any time for any reason. <sighs> But the more you watch, the more you realize they don't really have passion for this person either. They're not motivated by love. Spend some time with them talking, and you realize they're, they're, they're trying to find ways to pay this person back. Trying to do something so they can erase a little bit of the debt on their own. Now, on the surface, it looks good. It looks like gratitude, but scratch the surface. You realize it's just penance. They don't believe that the past is really forgiven, that it doesn't follow them around anymore, that they really are free. Instead, underneath, they still feel guilty about what they owed, and they want 
more than anything, to just pay some of it back themselves, something that will let them feel just uh, a little bit better about themselves. What is that? It's a combination. It's a combination of pride that says, I can do this, I can pay it back. Pride and disguised resentment. Resentment that says, great, now I owe even more than I already used to. This is the religious approach to God. The approach that says, I can and I have to pay my own way, at least to do something that I value, something that I think is worthwhile. And if you've ever tried to relate to God like that, like I have, you know you can't keep doing it for very long. You wear out, you get hardened, you quit. That's person B. Person C, completely different from A or B. Person C is driven now by love. Because they have some sense of how big their problem was and some sense of knowing that they could never pay back what they owed, they see how much they've been loved, that someone else would pay it for them. And in that moment, they realize that their relationship with this other person is not based on debt, it's based on love. That they are loved not for anything that they bring to the table, <laughs> they're loved for absolutely no good reason. They're loved in spite of what they brought to the table. Genuinely loved, genuinely cared for in such a way that they go, I, you know, I, I can trust that love. I can trust that that's the way that person really feels about me. They can trust the person who loves them. There's no ulterior motive behind that. And because they've been loved, they, they now what? They, they respond with love. They want to love this one back like he's loved them. They want to please him. Get to know him, be with him, because no one has ever been this good to them. They want to do more. They want to work to advance his interests. Because if what he's doing succeeds, even more people will have the opportunity to experience the goodness that they themselves have experienced. That's what a relationship with God is like. You can hear how different it is from being religious from trying to be good to pay God back or thinking that being good will make God like you more. Peter knew the size of his debt. He wept bitterly. He heard two little words that told him he was loved. Two little words that sent him to Galilee to meet the God who loved him. And that's why every one of us needs to hear these words today. It's because some of us are deeply aware that we are not worthy of this Jesus. We know that we failed him way more times than we can count. We feel the weight of those times, sapping our joy, keeping us from coming close to God, keeping us from serving him. We need to hear those two words because we haven't yet seen how much he loves us, how much he wants us. Some of us need this morning to see that the past is forgiven. Others of us need to see that there is a past that needs to be forgiven. If you find yourself like person A, little excitement, enthusiasm to meet God, be with him, no real interest or passion to advance his kingdom, if you're willing to let other things crowd him out of your life, what does that tell you? It tells you that you don't think he canceled very much for you. 
you don't think what he did was really that big a deal. And so your problem is not that you don't think you're worthy of him. It's that you don't think he's worthy of you. Worthy of your time, worthy of your attention. And here's the good news in this passage, regardless of where you and I are this Easter Sunday. Because he is risen, you have a God who understands you, who invites you to meet with him, who will forgive you and love you if you ask. A God who continues to carry out his plan so that his goodness will impact every area of this planet, including you and me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you didn't simply die for us. Thank you that you rose for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can come boldly to you now knowing a little bit better that you will receive us, want us, embrace us. Lord, make that love real to us this morning. Lord, make your forgiveness real. Lord, warm our hearts, melt us so that we move toward you. Lord, forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for our lack of interest. Forgive us for being so consumed with the things around us. Let us see again all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.